Well, it's not often that I start crying when the scripture is being read before I preach, so we'll see how this goes today. <clears throat> but there's such good news for us here in the Lord. Um, I don't know if you put this together, but over the last couple of weeks as we've had RUF ministers come in and preach to us, one of the themes of their messages has been that whatever you see in Jesus Christ, what you see in him is an exact imprint of the Father's nature so that when you see Jesus living and laughing and eating and conversing with people on earth, if you want to ask yourself the question, what would God the Father be like if he were on the earth now, he would be exactly like Jesus was. So what we find in Jesus is an exact imprint of the Father's nature, and this is compelling, especially when you consider the joy of Jesus. Jesus had joy that was unshakable. It was so unshakable, we know that Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus had joy when he went to the cross. It says he went to the cross full of joy, despising the shame as he purchased us and freed us from our sin, that Jesus found joy even in the cross. Jesus also found joy in ordinary things too. He consistently surprised people. He frustrated people even with the joy that he had in different situations. Why did Jesus find joy in ordinary things? Well, I guess you could think about it this way. Jesus created everything in this world. Everything that Jesus ate and drank, he created all of those things. So imagine they're eating, it's hard for us to imagine, but imagine for Jesus what it was like to come to earth and eat some of the fruit and vegetables and drink maybe some of the tea uh, everything that Jesus made for us, all of the berries and the mangoes, all of the almonds and the seaweed, which my daughter likes eating, I can't stand that stuff, but all of the coffee and all of the tea and all the bourbon and all the things that are there that are good, Jesus actually made those things or made the ingredients that those things are made from. Imagine for Jesus on the other side, eating with people who just weren't aware of the fact that the food that they were eating was good. Imagine how that might have been frustrating for him being the one that created all of it. Jesus made ordinary life for us to enjoy. If he didn't want us to enjoy our food and our drink, he could have easily created us all with IV bags, just hanging and being inserted into our veins so that we had the sustenance that we needed. But no, he didn't do that. He created food and drink for us to enjoy. I was talking with my son Jordan this past week. We dropped him off at App State for his first year of college. That's not an easy thing to do. We were eating at Chipotle there in Boone and about to drop him off. And, and Jordan said something to me that was so insightful. He said, you know, Dad, there's a lot of people out there that have never actually rejected Jesus, but they've rejected Christianity. They've rejected uh, a faith that tells them that in order for God to love them, they need to fit into his box, that they need to change and, and be a perfectionist and live up to all of these kind of rules in order for God to love them. He said, I wonder how many people have rejected Christianity but have never really known or rejected Jesus. And nothing, I mean, it brought great joy to my heart for him to say something like that to me. 
But as we think about it, I wonder how many of our friends, maybe how many of you find Christianity very off-putting because you just feel like you never measure up and you never fit in enough and you're just not ever good enough for God to love you. Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus also hates that version of Christianity. Jesus doesn't, he didn't come to earth so that you could fit into a box for him to love you. He came to earth because you needed him and he loves you and he came to save you. So today from Ecclesiastes, we're going to encounter a God who teaches us that we are called to find joy in ordinary things in life. And then we're going to go forward to the life of Jesus, and we're going to see how Jesus perfectly incarnated the theology of Ecclesiastes, that Jesus knew better than anyone else how to enjoy life. And then we're going to look forward to the end to realize that actually learning to enjoy ordinary things in life in our life right now is important, not just for its own sake right now, but because it is a preview, a foreshadowing of the life to come that we will also be enjoying, enjoying ordinary things in heaven together forever. A little bit of a, um, a pastoral moment here. I, real, I realize that there have been many times in my life if I heard a sermon preached on joy as Mark just prayed about, uh, and I was struggling with depression or I was kind of living on the other side of the human existence, hearing a sermon like this might be hard, uh, depending on where you are right now in life. I personally have struggled with depression from time to time, and I feel you. Especially in COVID, I feel you, because I feel like in COVID, one thing that we learned as a society, or we should have learned, is how to grieve and to grieve our losses, which is good. But we also don't need to forget that we, we serve a God of joy, that Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was also a man of intense and perfect joy. And so we have freedom also in life to not just experience the lows, but also to experience the highs and the joys of life as the Lord gives them to us. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for us today. Lord, we all come in from various places this morning, this week, this year, in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that wherever we are, that you would find us here and show us that you are indeed the God of joy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first of all, the wisdom of finding joy in the ordinary. This is from Ecclesiastes. So that God gives us good things to enjoy in life and that we should enjoy those things is absolutely basic. It's so basic and obvious to our human existence and to our Christian existence that we should all know how to do it. But for some reason for me growing up, I really didn't know how or didn't understand that we were supposed to really enjoy intensely enjoy the blessings that the Lord gave us in life. Yeah, sure, every single time before a meal we prayed, we returned thanks, but 99.9% .9 of the time that was perfunctory. We just did it because we we're supposed to. There's something good about patterns like that. I realized that, but I was not taught how to find joy in regular things in life. That God wants us to enjoy ordinary things in life just did not really comport with my worldview I had 
growing up in church. I was almost afraid of joy in the material world. On one side, as you're on the road of following Christ, on one side of the ditch is what I learned much later after I was a kid. It's called asceticism. Maybe that's a new word for you. This is a view of life where material things in the world are really bad, and we shouldn't entangle ourselves with any of those things. And the more we keep our distance from the material world, the better off we're going to be because it's going to get you. And so you need to be free of all worldly desires. To the extreme, that's called asceticism. On the other side of the ditch is hedonism. Hedonism says, fill your heart up, fill your life up with all of the material pleasures in this world, and just maybe there's an algorithm out there where if you just have enough things and plug it in and enjoy them enough, you'll actually be happy. And I knew well enough that that wasn't right growing up as a Christian. And so I lived in my life, I lived on this road of trying to follow Jesus not really wanting to be close to asceticism because I knew that we weren't supposed to be that extreme, but certainly not wanting to be a hedonist because I knew that things in the world were bad. And so what we found is even like going on vacation growing up, that we were supposed to enjoy it, but we, we also felt a little bit bad about spending money in a kind of an extravagant way on going on vacation. We couldn't really enjoy it. Nothing was really said but we recognized that there were people suffering in the world and we, maybe we shouldn't be doing this, but we're doing it anyway because that's what people do in America. Instead of just enjoying the fact that we could go on vacation, the whole time there was this underlying nervousness about should we really be doing this or not. I felt like when I was really having fun, simultaneously maybe there was something a little bit wrong with having too much fun. And that's how it was growing up. Maybe something I was enjoying could sneak up on me and ruin me. The idea was, yeah, do your jobs and play your sports and, it's, and attend to your lawns and your gardens, but only do it as a duty from God. Don't actually enjoy any of it. Even in your marriage, be married, but don't let it distract you from your main purpose which is to glorify God. So don't let marriage, don't, enjoy your children, but don't enjoy them too much. Make sure you raise them in the Lord and send them off, hopefully to be missionaries. If not, maybe they can do something else. But everything in the world, all of the things, the jobs, the lawns, marriage and parenting, things as good as that, they weren't really there to be fully enjoyed. They were there as potential temptations away from loving God and enjoying him and glorifying him. Instead of seeing those things purely as a gift from God to be enjoyed, there was always something that was tainted there. I don't know if you grew up like this or not. I hope you didn't. Maybe you grew up in a different environment than I did. But without realizing it, what I grew up in, and I didn't know a name for it at the time, but it's called dualism. Dualism is a separation between the secular and the sacred the secular and the sacred. So you have all the secular things in the world, jobs, lawns, even marriage and kids, and you have the spiritual, the sacred. You have being in church, you have reading your Bible, you have praying, you have evangelism. And these two things were like binary poles. If you move toward the secular, you're moving away from the sacred. If you move toward the sacred, you're moving away from the secular. I didn't learn until later in life that when Jesus came in his incarnation, 
he completely blew up that. He blew up that view of the world, this dualistic world, where there's a separation between the spiritual and the material. Jesus came as a human being. He came fully human, dirt under the fingernails, eating at the table, and he came as God, perfectly representing the Trinity in his humanity. Jesus blows up dualism so that everything in this world is given to us as an opportunity to enjoy them and to know the God who stands behind them. Going to Ecclesiastes, we'll start in in chapter 9, verse 7, where Solomon writes, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Now, I promise you I never heard this preached on when I was growing up. In fact, if they could have deleted this from the Bible, they probably would have, but fortunately in Revelation and other places, there are prohibitions from taking things out of Scripture. Or this would have definitely been gotten, especially the part about the wine. I mean, there's just no way that would have been left in there. But what does this mean? God has already approved of what you do. So you should drink wine and eat with a merry heart. What does it mean that God has already approved of what you do? Well, the people in that day and age were in the uh, covenant community and under the old covenant, but God had secured these people to himself by his grace. But us, for us in the new covenant, the promises are even stronger, much stronger. In Jesus Christ, you could say that the verdict over your life is already in God has already decided how he feels about you. And the way he feels about you is that he loves you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have the righteousness of God covering your life. You have been forgiven of all of your sin. And so God, when he looks at you, he's not gauging, do I approve of this person or do I not approve of this person? He has already said over you that you are his child and he loves you. And so you can and should eat and drink and celebrate in your life. Now, now we look around in our society and many people are eating and drinking and celebrating all kinds of things. So you can do that without Christ at the center and what happens is all of that is like a vapor, as it says in Ecclesiastes over and over. It's like vanity, it's, it's, it's a mist. It's here today and gone tomorrow. But with Christ at the center of your life, You can really enjoy your life. Why? Because it points you ahead, or it's like a window that you're looking through to get to something even better and even more beautiful, which is the God of grace who loves you. Eating and drinking with the joy of Christ at the table, you should be merry in your soul. If you go to Ecclesiastes 5.19, Solomon writes, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift from God. Who gave you whatever you have? Who gave you your wealth and your possessions? God did. Did he give you those things so that you would be afraid of them for your whole life? Did he give you those things so that you could enjoy them? He gave them to you for your joy. In fact, it's only through knowing God that you can have possessions, wealth, 
money, nice things, and for you to be actually able to enjoy them. One thing we see in our world today that it might be a little bit counterintuitive to you, but some of the most wealthy people in the world, jet-setting from here to there, are actually very miserable people. Why is that? It's because the more you have, if you feel like you gave it to yourself, the more intense your emotions around those possessions become. So there's a greater sense of entitlement. There's a greater sense of arrogance. There's a greater fear of loss. And so you become owned by your possessions instead of you owning them. But with Christ at the center, you can actually have some nice things and for them not to own you. You can actually enjoy them because you do not believe that you are the sum, the source, and security of all those resources. God actually is that for you. So a Christian who is blessed in material ways believes these come from God and enables us to be joyful, to be full of praise, to be generous with our possessions. We're not afraid that God's going to take them all away from us. And even if he did, he's going to provide for us so that we can be generous with our resources. If you go down to verse 9 in chapter 9, a verse I'll highlight here is, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that is given you under the sun. It's not just your wife, but you should enjoy her if you have one, a husband if you have one, also friends. God gave you these, this family that you're in, the friends that you have, and they are good and beautiful gifts from him. In fact, if you don't enjoy your wife or your husband or your friends or your relationships, then it's not glorifying to God. God gave them to you so that you would see him and his generosity to you through them. You know, I had a birthday this past week, and sometimes birthdays, as we all know, they can be weird days. They can be kind of funky days where you get introspective and you start asking questions like, am I really on the right path? Am I really you know, meeting goals? Am I still as healthy as I want to be? Are we, are we kind of making it down the road as, as we want to go? But, but this year, maybe it's because I was getting ready to prepare this sermon, I felt much more free. I felt like I was able to enjoy the gifts Enjoy the family, enjoy the blessings, enjoy the church, and I'm grateful for that. And part of the blessing of God that comes to us through the Holy Spirit is that when we're blessed, we can actually enjoy the blessings. You know how it is when you're, you're looking at your life and you're like, man, like actually things aren't that bad, but I'm a mess right now. Like why? It's a gift from God when we can enjoy the life that he's given to us. So we can pray, God, help me. You know, some people say that you can't choose joy. I don't believe that's true. I do believe it is a paradigm shift in the soul. We, we can turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm not in a good place. In relationship to all the things you've given me, I'm not in a good place. Can you help me enjoy the life that you've given to me? So in Ecclesiastes, as Solomon articulates it, we can, we can see that you should find joy in ordinary life. But Jesus just blows this up. He just double clicks on it and maximizes it on the screen and says, this is who I am. I am a God of joy. So the joy of the Son of Man in the ordinary is the second point. We find this in the Gospels. So Tim Chester is a writer, and he recently wrote a blog, 
And in his blog, he said, how would you finish this sentence? The son of man came and then finish, finish the sentence. The son of man, who is the son of man? Well, the son of man is Jesus. The son of man is a reference back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This is one of the most famous pastors in the Old Testament. Any Jewish kid would have known this passage growing up because it is a prediction, it's a prophecy of the Messiah who would come. This is going to be the one who's going to come, who's going to have total authority to reign over the world, the anointed one from God. He's going to be called the Son of Man. Now, Jesus uses this term to refer to himself throughout the Gospels a lot. And if you're new to Christianity, you're new to reading the Bible, and you read the Son of Man, it's kind of weird. You're like, what does that mean? We're all sons of men, I think. I mean, he says, I'm the Son of Man. So maybe he's saying, I'm like, the ultimate human, and that's not a bad way to look at it, but the best way to look at it is to, go, to realize that Jesus is saying, I am the one that Daniel prophesied would come. I am the one who has total authority over all of the world. I have divine right from God the Father to show you what it's going to be like when God himself in flesh comes to earth. And so when Jesus says the Son of Man came, you should be on the edge of your seat because there's probably not a more important sentence to finish than the Son of Man came for what reason to do what? What will he be about? What will he care about? And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man and he says the Son of Man came three different times in the Gospels. Two of those occasions, he speaks about the why of his mission, the why behind his mission. And one time, he talks about the how of his mission. The two times he talks about the why of his mission, he says the Son of Man came in Luke 19.10 to seek and to save that which was lost. So the Son of Man came, why? To look for and to save lost people. And then, later on, he says again in Mark, he said this is actually used in Mark 10.45 and by Sam Alberry, if you... Listen to Tim Keller's memorial service this week on Tuesday. This was one of the main verses that Sam Albury talked about from Mark 10, 45, where Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's another why sentence. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. But then the other time Jesus starts a sentence with the words, the Son of Man came, comes in Luke 7, 34, which is included in the scriptures this morning, where it says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. As Jesus is going about the why of his mission, which is to seek and save the lost, as he's going about the why of his mission, which is to ransom people from their sin, he is also engaged in the how of his mission. How is he going to do this? How is he going to seek and save the lost? How is he going to give his life as a ransom for many? He's going to spend time with people that he loves. He's going to spend time with lost people. He's going to spend time welcoming them into his kingdom. Before he dies for them, He's going to live with them. He's going to love them. 
He's going to share his life with them. And if Hebrews 1.3 is correct, where it says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father's nature, then we can know that it's not just Jesus, it's the whole Trinity who is saying to us, I have come to seek and save the lost. I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. I have come to eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because I want to invite them in. I want to invite them in. Jesus said of himself multiple times in the Gospel of John, if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. So when Jesus is partying with lost people, then the Father also is there with him, enjoying the company with Jesus. In fact, we know from Luke 15, 10, that every single time a lost person repents, that the angels throw a party in heaven. Did you know that? Have you ever read that? That the angels all celebrate Whenever one sinner repents, now how did the angels learn that? They've, they've been looking at God the whole time, all of eternity. They, they party when people repent because they have been looking at the Trinity and because God loves when lost people come to know him. Now I must admit I heard nothing about this partying God growing up in the deep south in Alabama. But to my surprise, squirreled away in the pages of the Bible is abundant evidence that God is no cosmic killjoy, but he is actually a God of pure and total and perfect joy. Jesus came eating and drinking. The why of his mission is to seek and save the lost, but the how is to spend time with people. Imagine this, around the table with the Son of God, there are people cursing 100% chance. Imagine this, around the table with Jesus, there are women who are not dressed appropriately. There is absolutely no doubt, and we have biblical evidence of this. Those tax collectors and sinners were getting drunk. They weren't drinking in moderation. At the end of the night, some people needed help getting home. But Jesus came, why? Because he loved them. He was not interested in cleaning the outside of the cup. He was interested in cleaning them on the inside. He knew that the only way to change the external behavior is to change the internal heart. And so he was there with them to seek and to save them. He was not interested in tutoring them in ancient Near Eastern moralism. He wanted them to know the gospel of grace that he had come for. You know, I've grown to appreciate the ministry of young life Young Life is excellent at following the how of Jesus' mission. They have not told kids that it's no fun to be a Christian. They have not trained children to be suspicious of something that looks like it might be fun because then it can't be something that you would do if you know Jesus personally. In fact, that type of attitude toward Christianity is just not, not okay. Uh, And so they they show kids you can have a great time, you can be fully alive, and you can know Jesus. And so they do a great job of reaching kids out on the farthest edges that might not otherwise be interested in Christ. Jesus was having so much fun with people that some people said he had a demon. They said it of John the Baptist, they said it of Jesus elsewhere. People were so confused by Jesus, especially religious leaders. Jesus' joy confused even the greatest of his followers. 
Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest among uh, women. That's what he said. Uh, the greatest, one of the greatest men born of women. But John the Baptist struggled with depression. He was in prison, and uh, at one point when he was in prison, he sent someone out because he himself started doubting whether or not Jesus was the Christ. Even though he had been preaching for Jesus for a really long time, been telling people that Jesus was the Son of God, the Lamb of God who had come into the world, but he was having his doubts as he was depressed in prison. So he sent out a messenger to ask Jesus to prove to John the Baptist that he was the Christ. And you find that in your passage in Matthew eleven four. How did Jesus prove that he indeed was the Christ? He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He says, you want to know how I'm the Messiah? You go ask the blind man who can see. He has joy because of me. You go ask the lame man who can walk, who now has joy because of me. You go ask the leper who is now clean and can live in community and go back in the temple and worship. He has joy because of me. Go ask the deaf man who can hear, who now has joy because of me. Ask the dead man who is living, who now is filled with joy because of me. Go ask the poor woman who had been ostracized and put on the outside of community. You go ask her what she thinks about me because now she has joy because of me because the good news is proclaimed to her. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding where he turned water to wine. Part of that is because he didn't want the host to be embarrassed. Part of that is he wanted to please his mother who asked for a miracle. But what if part of that was because Jesus wanted more wine at the party? It's actual, it's possible, right? Jesus ate grilled fish in his resurrected body on the side of the Sea of Galilee. And we wonder why. Well, was it just because he was hungry? I'm sure it was. But grilled fish is good, especially over a campfire. Maybe he liked it. Maybe he is the God of joy. Maybe he's not just the man of sorrows. Maybe he wants us to find joy in the ordinary things that he created all of them for us to enjoy. Jesus said to John the Baptist in his response at the very end, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus calls it. There's something about us that gets offended by the joy of Jesus. What is that? We get a little bit uncomfortable that Jesus enjoyed life this much. And John the Baptist, he knew when he heard this, maybe it would be a bit offensive to think that the Son of God came with this much joy Every one of Jesus' attributes, every single one of them, his holiness, his righteousness, his grace, his love, and his joy, you can take each one of those attributes and you can blow it out to infinity and say, this is that attribute. So with Jesus, you can say, this is joy. This is joy. And when we get to heaven, we'll know what that means. We'll know what it's like to experience this intense, boundless, inexpressible, extreme, perfect joy of God. Let's not be offended by it. Remember when you became a Christian, 
whenever that was, that God threw a party for you in heaven. And remember, when other people are just learning about Jesus and they're not quite, they're not quite there yet, when they come to know Christ, that we should have that same joy, that same incredible joy at seeing the Lord change hearts. So finally, uh, we should also realize that we will find joy in the ordinary in the new creation. I included a passage from Isaiah. I could have included many others. But the big theological question behind all this is, and I'm throwing a lot of big words here, but it's it's an idea of dispensationalism, uh, which is this idea that in the end, it's, it's, there's many ideas there, but one idea toward the end times is that it's all going to burn. It's all going to be burned up. Why in the world would you find joy in this material world if it's all going to burn up? It's all going to come to nothing in the end. That's a, that's a great question. Your view of the end of time greatly shapes your enjoyment of life today. It greatly has impact on how you think about life today. This view of it's all going to burn is not just limited. I grew up this way. It's not limited to Pentecostals. There's a lot of uh, Baptist theology. There's a lot of different groups that teach that it's all going to burn. So, you know, be afraid of the material world. Try to escape it as much as possible. And one day, the good news is we're all going to float around like disembodied spirits uh, playing harps forever and won't that be great? I'm, I'm kidding. Like, that's not a very attractive view of the future, right? That's good. It's good news for us that that's not an attractive view because it's also not the Bible's view. I don't know how we got there, but it's just not biblical to think that everything in this world is going to burn up and it will be no more. I do believe that the world will be purified by fire in some way. God will sanctify the world, but the preponderance of evidence in the Bible is that this world will become a new heavens and a new earth. God will renew and redeem a new creation that is somehow related uh, to the world that we live in now. The view of the end times, this view of the end times, it's all going to burn, does not hold up in Scripture. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit value the ordinary world, not just because they created it, but because this world will be redeemed and will last forever. That's also why they, they, they enjoy and they want us to enjoy this world that we live in. If you don't believe me, how do you explain this passage from Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, which, by the way, Kel- Kathy Keller said in the memorial service for Tim Keller that this is one of the texts that they were considering putting on Tim's gravestone, but they realized it would be it would need to be a gigantic gravestone in order to fit this much text. So they're probably going to choose a different one. But she did mention this in her words about Tim. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the veil That is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
Heaven includes a vision of a table that we are all, a gigantic, massive table for all the people of God where the supplies will be abundant. We will have food and we will have well-aged wine. We will have all kinds of amazing things that God will provide for us. This is not allegorical. This is real. This is a real picture of heaven. Jesus himself was a redeemed man with a physical body. We will have physical bodies and we will sit around real tables together eating and enjoying the life to come. But the only way that you can be there and enjoy that meal is if you will know the God of grace in this life, in this ordinary life, Jesus has come. He has come as a human being. He has come to eat and dine at tables, ordinary tables. He has come as the Son of Man to seek and save the lost. He has come to die to ransom lost people so that they would know him. People who have been ransomed are now people who are free. If you've not yet been ransomed, then you're not free. And so I encourage you to join the party of God where you can find freedom in the grace of God, at the table of God, because he loves you. He cares about you. He cares that you would enjoy him, that you would enjoy his grace, and he cares that you would enjoy your life, all of the things that he has given you to enjoy. Will you come to this God who dines at tables with sinners and then goes up on a cross and dies for them? Will you trust in him? Let's pray. Well, there's something hardwired into our hearts. It's probably sin that makes us offended by joy. There's something cynical that makes us suspicious of grace. There's something broken that makes us less willing to receive the love that you offer us in the gospel. So I ask that you would break through. Help us to receive your grace. Help us to receive your joy. Help us to not be offended by you who came from the Father, Lord Jesus, to show us an exact imprint of what the Trinity really thinks about us. And that you are a God who dines with us and you're a God who dies for us. We thank you.